This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill. Chapter 7, Part B The Life of the Spirit and Education. Every human being, as we know, inevitably tends to emphasize some aspects of that world and to ignore others, to build up for himself a relative universe. The choices which determine the universe of maturity are often made in youth. Then the foundations are laid of that apperceiving mass which is to condition all the man's contacts with reality. We ought, therefore, to show the universe to our young people from such an angle and in such a light that they tend quite simply and without any objectionable intensity to select, emphasize, and be interested in its spiritual aspect. For this purpose we must never try to force our own reading of that universe upon them, but respect, on the one hand, their often extreme sensitiveness, and on the other, the infinitely various angles of approach proper to our infinitely various souls, we should place food before them and leave them to browse. Only those who have tried this experiment knows what such an enlargement of the horizon and enrichment of knowledge means to the eager adolescent mind. How prompt is the response to any appeal which we make to its nascent sense of mystery. Yet whole schools of thought on these subjects are cheerfully ignored by the majority of our educationists, Hence the unintelligent and indeed babyish view of religion, which is harbored by many adults, even of the intellectual class. Though the spiritual life has its roots in the heart and not in the head, and will never be brought about by merely academic knowledge, yet its beginnings in adolescence are often lost, because young people are completely ignorant of the meaning of their own experiences, and the universal character of those needs and responses which they dimly feel stirring within them. They are too shy to ask, and no one ever tells them about it in a business-like and unembarrassing way. This infant mortality in the spiritual realm ought not to be possible. Experience of God is the greatest of the rights of man, and should not be left to become the casual discovery of the few. Therefore prayer ought to be regarded as a universal human activity, and its nature and difficulties should be taught but always in the sense of intercourse rather than that of mere petition, keeping in mind the doctrine of the mystics that prayer in itself properly is not else but a devout intent directed to God. 147. We teach concentration for the purposes of study, but too seldom think of applying it to the purposes of prayer. Yet real prayer is a difficult art, which, like other ways of, of approaching perfect beauty, only discloses its secrets to those who win them by humble training and hard work. Shall we not try to find some method of showing our adolescents their way into this world, lying at our doors and offered to us without money and without price? Again, many teachers and parents waste the religious instinct and emotional vigor which are often so marked in adolescents by allowing them to fritter themselves upon symbols which cannot stand against hostile criticism, for instance, some of the more sentimental and anthropomorphic aspects of Christian devotion. Did we educate those instincts, show the growing creature their meaning, and give them an objective which did not conflict with the objectives of the developing intellect and the will? We should turn their passion into power and lay the foundations of a real spiritual life. We must remember that a good deal of adolescent emotion is diverted by the conditions of school life from its obvious and natural objective. 
This is so much energy set free for other uses. We know how it emerges in hero worship, or in ardent friendships, how it reinforces the social instinct and produces the team spirit, the intense devotion to the interests of his own gang, or group, which is rightly prominent in the life of many boys. The teacher has to reckon with this funded energy and enthusiasm, and use it to further the highest interests of the growing child. By this I do not mean that he is to encourage an abnormal or emotional concentration on spiritual things. Most of the impulses of youth are wholesome, and subserve direct ends. Therefore it is not by taking away love, self-sacrifice, admiration, curiosity from their natural objects that we shall serve the best interests of spirituality, but by enlarging the range over which these impulses work, impulses indeed which no human object can wholly satisfy, save in a sacramental sense. Two such natural tendencies, specially prominent in childhood, are peculiarly at the disposal of the religious teacher, and should be used by him to the full. It is in the sublimation of the instinct of comradeship that the social and corporate side of the spiritual life takes its rise, and in closest connection with this impulse that all works of charity should be suggested and performed. And on the individual side, all that is best, safest, and sweetest in the religious instinct of the child can be related to a similar enlargement of the instinct of filial trust and dependence. The educator is therefore working within the two most fundamental childish qualities, qualities provoked and fostered by all right family life, with its relation of love to parents, brothers, sisters, and friends, and may gently lead out of these two mighty impulses to a fulfillment which, at maturity, embrace God and the whole world. The wise teacher, then, must work with the instincts, not against them, encouraging all kindly social feelings, all vigorous self-expression, wonder, trustfulness, love, recognizing the paramount importance of emotion, for without emotional color no idea can be actual to us, and no deed thoroughly and vigorously performed, yet he must always be on his guard against blocking the natural channels of human feeling, and giving them the opportunity of exploding under pious disguises in the religious spheres. Here it is that the danger of too emotional a type of religious training comes in. Sentimentalism of all kinds is dangerous and objectionable, especially in the education of girls, whom it excites and debilitates. Boys are more often alienated by it. In both cases, the method of presentation which regards the spiritual life simply as a normal aspect of a full human life is best. No artificial barrier should be set up between the sacred and the profane. The passion for truth and the passion for God should be treated as one, and that pursuit of knowledge for its own sake, those adventurous explorations of the mind, in which the more intelligent type of adolescent loves to try his growing powers, ought to be encouraged in the spiritual sphere, as elsewhere. The results of research into religious origins should be explained without reservation, and no intellectual difficulty should be dodged. The putting-off method of meeting awkward questions, now generally recognized as dangerous in matters of natural history, is just as dangerous in the religious sphere. No teacher who is afraid to state his own position with perfect candor should ever be allowed to undertake this side of education, nor any in whom there is a marked cleavage between the standard of conduct and the standard of thought. The healthy adolescent is prompt to perceive inconsistency, and unsparing in its condemnation. Moreover, a most careful discrimination is daily becoming more necessary in the teaching of traditional religion of a supernatural and non-empirical type. 
many of its elements must no doubt be retained by us for the child mind demands firm outlines and examples and imagery drawn from the world of sense yet grave dangers are attached to it on the one hand an exclusive reliance on tradition paves the way for the disillusion which is so often experienced towards the end of adolescence when it frequently causes a violent reaction to materialism on the other hand it exposes us to a risk which we particularly want to avoid that of reducing the child's nascent spiritual life to the dream level, to a fantasy in which it satisfies wishes that outward life leaves unfulfilled. Many pious people, especially those who tell us that their religion is a comfort to them, go through life in a spiritual daydream of this kind. Concrete life has starved them of love, of beauty, of interest. It has given them no synthesis which satisfies the passionate human search for meaning, and they have found all this in a dream world, made from the materials of conventional piety. If religion is thus allowed to become a ready-made daydream, it will certainly interest adolescents of a certain sort. The naturally introverted type will become meditative, whilst their opposites, the extroverted or active type, will probably tend to be ritualistic. But here again we are missing the essence of spiritual life. Our aim should be to induce, in a wholesome way, that sense of the spiritual and daily experience which the old writers called the consciousness of the presence of God. The monastic training in spirituality, slowly evolved under pressure of experience, nearly always did this. It has bequeathed to us a funded wisdom of which we make little use, and this, reinterpreted in the light of psychological knowledge, might, I believe, cast a great deal of light on the fundamental problems of spiritual education. We could, if we chose, take many hints from it, as regards the disciplining of the attention, the correct use of suggestion, the teaching of meditation, the sublimation and direction to an assigned end of the natural impulse to reverie, above all, the education of the moral life. For character-building, as understood by these old specialists, was the most practical of arts. Further, in all this teaching, those inward activities and responses which we can give generally the name of prayer, and those outward activities and deeds of service to which we can give the name of work, ought to be trained together, and never dissociated. They are the complementary and balanced expressions of one spirit of life, and must be given together under appropriately simple forms. Concrete application of the child's energies, aptitudes, and ideals must from the first run side by side with the teaching of principle. Young people, therefore, should constantly be encouraged to face as practical and interesting facts, not as formulae, those reactions to eternal and this world reality, which used to be called our duty to God and our neighbor, and do concrete things proper to a real citizen of a really theocratic world they must be made to realize that nothing is truly ours until we have expressed it in our deeds. Moreover, these deeds should not be easy. They should involve effort and self-sacrifice and also some drudgery, which is worse. The spiritual life is only valued by those on whom it makes genuine demands. Almost any kind of service will do, which calls for attention, time, and hard work. Though voluntary, it must not be casual but once undertaken, should be regarded as an honorable obligation. The Boy Scouts and Girl Guides have shown us how wide a choice of possible good deeds is offered by every community, and such a banding together of young people for corporate acts of service is strongly to be recommended. It encourages unselfish comradeship, 
satisfies that gang instinct which is a well-known character of adolescence and should leave no opening for self-consciousness rivalry and vanity in well-doing or in abnegation wise educators find that a combined system of organized games in which the social instinct can be expressed and developed and of independent constructive work in which the creative impulse can find satisfaction best meets the corporate and creative needs of adolescence favors the right development of characters and produces a harmonized life on the level of the spiritual life too this principle is valid and guided by it we should seek to give young people both corporate and personal work and experience on the one hand gregariousness is at its strongest in the healthy adolescent the force of public opinion is more intensely felt than at any other time of life that priceless quality the spirit of comradeship is most easily adduced we must therefore seek to give the spiritual life a vigorous corporate character to make it good form for the school and to use the team spirit in the choir and the guild as well as in the cricket field by an extension of this principle and under the influence of a suitable teacher the school mob may be transformed into a cooperative society animated by one joyous and unselfish spirit all the great powers of social suggestion being freely used for the highest ends thus we may introduce the pupil at his most plastic age into a spiritual social order and let him grow within it developing those qualities and skills on which it makes demands the religious exercises whatever they are should be in common in order to develop the mass consciousness of the school and weld it into a real group music songs processions etc produce a feeling of unity and encourage spiritual contagion services of an appropriate kind if there be a chapel or the opening of school with prayer and a hymn which ought always to be followed by a short silence provide a natural expression for corporate religious feeling and remember that to give a feeling opportunity of voluntary expression is commonly to adduce and affirm it as regards active work while school charities are an obvious field in which unselfish energies may be spent many other openings will be found by enthusiastic teachers and by the pupils whom their enthusiasm has inspired on the other hand the spare time occupations of the adolescent the independent and self-chosen work often most arduous and always absorbing of making planning learning about things and most of us can still remember how desperately important these seem to us whether our taste was for making engines writing poetry or collecting moths these are of the greatest importance for his development they give him something really his own exercise his powers train his attention feed his creative instinct they counteract those mechanical and conventional reactions to the world which are induced by the merely traditional type of education either of manners or of mind and here in the prudent encouragement of a personal interest in and dealing with the actual problems of conduct and even of belief the most difficult of the educator's tasks we guard against the merely acquiescent attitude of much adult piety and foster from the beginning a vigorous personal interest a first-hand contact with higher realities the heroic aspect of history may well form the second line in this attempt to capture education and use it in the interest of the spiritual life by it we can best link up the actual and the ideal and demonstrate the single character of human greatness whether it be exhibited in the physical or in the supersensual sphere such a demonstration is most important for so long as the spiritual life is regarded as merely a departmental thing and its full development as a matter for specialists or saints it will never produce its full effect in human affairs 
we must exhibit it as the full flower of that reality which inspires all human life. All kinds of skill, said Towler, are gifts of the Holy Ghost. And he might have said all kinds of beauty and all kinds of courage, too. The heroic makes a direct appeal to lads and girls and is by far the safest way of approach to their emotions. The chivalrous, the noble, the desperately brave attract the adolescent far more than passive goodness. That strong instinct of subjection, of homage, which he shows in his hero worship, is a most valuable tool in the hands of the teacher who is seeking to lead him into greater fullness of life. Yet the range over which we seek material for his admiration is often deplorably narrow. We have behind us a great spiritual history, which shows the highest faculties of the soul in action, the power and the happiness they bring. Do we take enough notice of it? What about our English saints? I mean the real saints, not the official ones, not St. George and St. Alban, about whom we know practically nothing. But, for instance, Lancelot Andrews, John Wesley, Elizabeth Fry, about whom we know a great deal. Children who find difficulty in general ideas learn best from particular instances. Yet boys and girls who can give a coherent account of such stimulating personalities as Julius Caesar, William the Conqueror, Henry the Eighth, and his wives, or Napoleon, none of whom have so very much to tell us that bears on the permanent interests of the soul, do not as a rule possess any vivid idea, say, of Guatama, St. Benedict, Gregory the Great, St. Catherine of Siena, St. Francis Xavier, George Fox, St. Vincent de Paul and his friends, persons at least as significant and far better worth meeting than the military commanders and political adventurers of their time. The stories of the early Buddhists, the Sufi saints, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Ignatius, the early Quakers, the African missionaries are full of things which can be made to interest even a young child. The legends which have grown up round some of them satisfy the instinct that draws it to the fairy tales. They help it to dream well and give to the developing mind food which it could assimilate in no other way. Older boys and girls, could they be given some idea of the spiritual heroes of Christendom as real men and women, without the nauseous note of piety which generally infects their biographies, would find much to delight them. Romance of the best sort, because concerned with the highest values, and stories of endurance and courage such as always appeal to them. These people were not objectionable pietists. They were persons of fullest vitality and immense natural attraction, the pick of the race. We know that by the numbers who left all to follow them. Ought we not to introduce our pupils to them, not as stuffed specimens, but as vivid human beings? Something might be done to create the right atmosphere for this, on the line suggested by Dr. Hayward in that splendid little book, The Lesson in Appreciation. All that he says there about aesthetics is applicable to any lesson dealing with the higher values of life. In this way, young people would be made to realize the spiritual life not as something abnormal or more or less conventionalized, but as a golden thread running right through human history and making demands on just those dynamic qualities which they feel themselves to possess. The adolescent is naturally vigorous and combative and wants above else something worth fighting for. This too often his teachers forget to provide. The study of nature and of aesthetics, including poetry, gives us yet another way of approach. The child should be introduced to these great worlds of life and of beauty and encouraged, but never forced, to feed on the best they contain. By implication, 
but never by any method savoring of uplift. These subjects should be related with that sense of the spiritual and of its eminence in creation, which ought to inspire the teacher, and with which it is his duty to infect his pupils if he can. Children may very early be taught, or rather induced, to look at natural things with that quietness, attention, and delight, which are the beginnings of contemplation, and the conditions under which nature reveals her secrets to us. The child is a natural pagan, and often the first appeal to its nascent spiritual faculty is best made through its instinctive joy in the life of animals and flowers, the clouds and the winds. Here it may learn very easily that wonder and adoration which are the gateways to the presence of God. In simple forms of verse, music, and rhythmical movement it can be encouraged, as the Salvation Army has discovered, to give this happy adoration a natural, dramatic, and rhythmic expression, for the young child, as we know, reproduces the mental condition of the primitive, and the primitive forms of worship will suit it best. It need hardly be said that educators of the type we have been considering demands great gifts in the teacher, simplicity, enthusiasm, sympathy, and also a vigorous sense of humor, keeping him sharply aware of the narrow line that divides the priggish from the ideal. This education ought to inspire, but it ought not to replace the fullest and most expert training of the body and mind, for the spirit needs a perfectly balanced machine through which to express its life in the physical world. The actual additions to the curriculum which it demands may be few. It is the attitude, the spirit, which must be changed. Specifically, moral education, the building of character, will of course form an essential part of it, in fact must be present within it from the first. But this comes best without observation, and will be found to depend chiefly on the character of the teacher, the love, admiration, and imitation he evokes, the ethical tone he gives. Childhood is, of all ages, the one most open to suggestion, and in this fact the educator finds at once his best opportunity and greatest responsibility. Royce Brooke has described to us the three outstanding moral dispositions in respect of God, of man, and of the conduct of life, which mark the true man or woman of the spirit. And it is in the childhood that the tendency to these qualities must be acquired. First, he says, I paraphrase, since the old terms of moral theology are no longer vivid to us, there comes an attitude of reverent love, of adoration, towards all that is holy, beautiful, or true. And next, from this, there grows up an attitude towards other men, governed by those qualities which are the essence of courtesy, patience, gentleness, kindness, and sympathy. These keep us both supple and generous in our responses to our social environment. Last, our creative energies are transfigured by an energetic love, an inward eagerness for every kind of work which makes impossible all slackness and dullness of heart and will impel us to live to the utmost the active life of service for which we are born. 148. But these moral qualities cannot be taught, they are learned by imitation and infection, and developed by opportunity of action. The best agent of their propagation is an attractive personality in which they are dominant, for we know the universal tendency of young people to imitate those whom they admire. The relation between parent and child, or master and pupil, is therefore the central factor in any scheme of education which seeks to further the spiritual life. Only those who have already become real can communicate the knowledge of reality. It is from the sportsman that we catch the spirit of fair play, from the humble that we learn humility. The artist shows us beauty, 
the saint shows us God. It should therefore be the business of those in authority to search out and give scope to those who possess and are able to impart this triumphing spiritual life. A headmaster who makes his boys live at their highest level and act on their noblest impulses because he does it himself is a person of supreme value to the state. It would be well if we cleared our minds of cant and acknowledged that such a man alone is truly able to educate since the spiritual life is infectious but cannot be propagated by artificial means. Finally, we have to remember that any attempt towards the education of the spirit, and such an attempt must surely be made by all who accept spiritual values as central for life, can only safely be undertaken with full knowledge of its special dangers and difficulties. These dangers and difficulties are connected with the instinctive and intellectual life of the child and the adolescent, who are growing and growing unevenly, during the whole period of training. They are supple as regards other forces than those which we bring to bear on them, open to suggestion from many different levels of life. Our greatest difficulty abides in the fact that, as we have seen, a vigorous spiritual life must give scope to the emotions. It is, above all, the heart rather than the mind which must be won for God. Yet the greatest care must be exercised to ensure that the appeal to the emotions is free from all possibility of appeal to latent and uncomprehended natural instincts. This peril, to which current psychology gives perhaps too much attention, is nevertheless real. Candid students of religious history are bound to acknowledge the unfortunate part which it has often played in the past. These natural instincts fall into two great classes, those relating to self-preservation, and those relating to the preservation of the race. The note of fear, the exaggerated longing for shelter and protection, the childish attitude of mere clinging dependence, fostered by religion of a certain type, are all oblique expressions of the instinct of self-preservation, and the rather feverish devotional moods and exuberant emotional expressions with which we are all familiar have, equally, a natural origin. Our task in the training of young people is to evoke enthusiasm, courage, and love, without appealing to either of these sources of excitement. Generally speaking, it is safe to say that for this reason all sentimental and many anthropomorphic religious ideas are bad for lads and girls. These have indeed no part in that austere yet ardent love of God which inspires the real spiritual life. Our aim ought to be to teach and impress the reality of spirit, its regnancy in human life, whilst the mind is alert and supple, and so to teach and impress it that it is woven into the stuff of the mental and moral life and cannot seriously be injured by the hostile criticisms of the rationalist. Remember that the prime objective of education is the molding of the unconscious and instinctive nature, the home of habit. If we can give this the desired tendency and tone of feeling, we can trust the rational mind to find good reasons with which to reinforce its attitudes and preferences. So it is not so much the specific belief as the whole spiritual attitude to existence which we seek to affirm, and this will be done on the whole more effectively by the generalized suggestions which come to the pupil from his own surroundings and the lives of those whom he admires than by the limited and special suggestions of a creed. It is found that the less any desired motive is bound up with particular acts, persons, or ideas, the greater is the chance of its being universalized and made good for life all round. I do not intend by this statement to criticize any particular presentation of religion. Nevertheless, educators ought to remember that a religion which is first entirely bound up with narrow and childish theological ideas, and is then presented as true in the absolute sense, is bound to break down under greater knowledge 
or hostile criticism, and may then involve the disappearance of the religious impulse as a whole, at least for a long period. Did we know our business, we ought surely to be able to ensure in our young people a steady and harmonious spiritual growth. The conversion or psychic convulsion, which is sometimes regarded as an essential preliminary of any vivid awakening of the spiritual consciousness, is really a tribute exacted by our wrong educational methods. It is a proof that we have allowed the plastic creature confided to us to harden in the wrong shape. But if, side by side and in simplest language, we teach the conceptions, first of God as the transcendent yet indwelling spirit of love, of beauty and of power, next of man's constant dependence on him and possible contact with his nature in that arduous and loving act of attention which is the essence of prayer, last of unselfish work and fellowship as the necessary expressions of all human ideals, then I think we may hope to lay the foundations of a balanced and a wholesome life in which man's various faculties work together for good and his vigorous instinctive life is directed to the highest ends. End of chapter 7b Footnotes 147. The Cloud of Unknowing 148. Roycebrook, The Adornment of the Spiritual Marriage, Book 1 